If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me. Hold your spot in Galatians chapter 5. And uh, we will get there in just a few minutes, continuing in the series, as I mentioned earlier, called Bearing Fruit. We kind of come into the tail end of this series, and uh, next Sunday, the plan is for that to be the very last message in the series. Obviously, we get to the ninth and the final uh, listing of the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, I'll share a little bit more about the series, kind of catching you up here in just a moment. But two weeks from today, believe it or not, is Easter. And uh, so glad. I mean, it's so easy to take things for granted. A year ago, we weren't even able to be in this space the way we are today. And uh, for Easter, we weren't able to be in this space. It was all online, recorded it earlier in that week, and uh, just had a a, a very different Easter celebration uh, last year. So we're just grateful that we can even be together. And uh, we'll share a little bit more via email and announcements as well later as we move through this week and next Sunday also about what to expect for Easter. But really excited that we can celebrate this time together. Galatians 5 is where we're going to be. Before we jump into this passage, I want to ask you a simple question. You don't have to answer out loud, but just kind of think through it for a moment. It's an important question. I'm going to ask you two to kind of start things off this morning. We're going to jump right into the deep end. I don't have a story to start off with. I don't have any, you know, uh, pictures of different kinds of fruit to see, you know, who's eaten this kind or tasted that kind. We're just going to jump into the deep end. The first question is this, how would you say a person who is sinful can be made right with God? How is a person who is sinful made right with God. And, and, and when I say that, it's a question that applies to every single one of us, whether in this room, whether online, the people you work with, the people in your neighborhood. How is a person who is sinful, that being all of us, who have such a train of evidence against us as sin, sins that we've committed, how can that person be made right with God? Well, the biblical answer, the truthful answer to that can be answered really in one word, and it's this nice Bible word called justification. So what does justification mean? Justification means that you have been declared through a relationship with Jesus, you have been declared not guilty. And here's how it happens. When you come to a place in your life, whether you are six or seven or whether you are in your 80s or 90s or somewhere in between, when you come to a place to where you realize that, you know what, I've sinned in my life and my sin has separated me from God. God is perfect, I am not. And when you begin to feel that conviction in your heart, right, the Holy Spirit drawing you to Christ where you realize I need to have my sin dealt with and I can't work it off and I can't good it away, meaning I can't do enough good to outweigh my bad, it doesn't work that way. But when you come to the place where you say and you believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross for you and that he rose again and you accept him you invite him to forgive you to take over your life and you trust him alone that he comes and he accepts that offer and he forgives you and he washes your heart clean and you are declared not guilty before God so how can a person who is sinful be made right with God by justification we are declared not guilty through a relationship with Jesus So the second question then follows up with that. So how can that person then, who has been declared not guilty, live in a way to where we can say we're being molded and shaped and even transformed into the image of Jesus as our Savior? See, it's one thing to be saved. It's one thing to be made right with God, to be justified, declared not guilty. It's another to be molded and shaped over time to where we reflect the Savior who has saved us. How does that happen? Well, there's another Bible word for this. It's called sanctification. We are being made holy. And here's the thing. When you accepted Christ in that instant, when you accepted and trusted Christ alone to be saved, you're made right with God instantaneously. 
In that moment, you were saved, you were forgiven, you were made right, you became a child of God in that instant. However, oh, and at that time, you were declared holy as well. However, over time, in your practice, God is molding and shaping and transforming you to where you live out your holiness in practical ways. That's called sanctification. It happens in an instant, in one sense, but it also happens over the rest of our lives in another sense. The context of Galatians is that Paul is dealing with that tension of what it means to be molded into the image of Jesus and how that sanctification process takes place. In the book of Galatians, there were a group of Christians who lived in the region of Galatia, right? Pretty good name for a book written to people who live in Galatia, Galatians. And so Paul is writing to these Christians, and as he writes to them, he's writing in a context of confusion, not on Paul's part, but on his hearer's part, on the people who would read this letter. The reason for the confusion was they had been taught by Paul to trust in Christ alone to be saved, to be made right with God. Now comes along a group of people called the Judaizers, right? That's our third big Bible word for the day, justification, sanctification, Judaizers. And so the Judaizers were people who had a Jewish background, and yet they were teaching, they were kind of infiltrating uh, the believers in the region of Galatia with a new teaching, a different gospel, if we could even say that. And what they were saying was, no, 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 if you want to be made right with God, Jesus alone is not enough. You need Jesus plus. If you want to be right with God, the Judaizers were teaching falsely that you need Jesus plus you need to adhere to the laws of the Old Testament, specifically the call to be circumcised, which we read throughout the Old Testament as a sign of the people of God. It runs counter to what Paul had been preaching and teaching. It runs counter to the understanding of salvation. Our salvation is not Jesus plus works of the law. It's not Jesus plus church membership. It's not Jesus plus a good life. It is just Jesus. And if you ever hear a gospel that is Jesus plus, that is not the gospel, right? It is trusting Christ alone. And so what Paul did was he wrote the book of Galatians to deal with this issue, to help the Galatian believers understand, no, 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 it's not about Jesus plus adhering to the law. It is just grace. You're saved by grace through your faith. And throughout the book of Galatians, Paul deals specifically with this dynamic, and he deals with what it means to be sanctified, to grow in our relationship with God, to grow in holiness, to grow in, in Christ-likeness. He's dealing with that in the book of Galatians, and it's all about grace, 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 grace. In fact, look at what he says. We just sang this um, during our worship time. Look at what he says here in Galatians chapter 5. Go back to to verse 1 in that chapter. We're going to get to the primary verses we're looking at in just a moment. Galatians chapter 5. Let's, let's take a look real quick at verse 1. Read a few verses here. Here's what Paul says. He says in Galatians 5 verse 1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. His reference there is don't it believe that adhering to the Old Testament law, don't believe that's going to save you. That is slavery. Verse 2, he says, behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he's under obligation to keep the whole law. Again, the belief wrapped up in that practice was that it's through that right that they're made right with God. Paul says it doesn't work that way. 
It's not about adhering to the Old Testament law. Yes, much of that law, morally, we still follow, but it doesn't make us right with God. Verse 4, he says, you've been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. And it doesn't mean, Paul's not saying that they've lost their salvation. He's saying, you were once walking in grace. You understood Christ alone is where your salvation rests. Now you're going back to the Old Testament. You've got to sort this out. You've got to figure this out. That's why in chapter 5, he says so often, four different times, walk by the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, live by the Spirit. Four different times in chapter 5, Paul is linking the pieces together. He says, you've been declared not guilty. You've been justified. You have a relationship with God. You were declared holy at that point, but he is also molding and shaping and changing you over time he is sanctifying you don't believe that going back to the law is going to make it any better keep walking in christ by faith the way you always have and when he gets to the end of chapter 5 beginning in verse 22 he lays out for us these seven qualities of christ likeness he could have listed more right the holy spirit just led him to list nine seven qualities of christ likeness that were demonstrated in Jesus, that he wants to ultimately produce through us. And this beautiful word picture Paul uses is this phrase, fruit of the Spirit. And the picture there is that just as the tree produces the fruit, the fruit doesn't produce itself, that we also see Christ, we see the Holy Spirit specifically, produce these qualities of Christ-likeness through us, these fruits of the Spirit. And so let's jump in. Galatians chapter 5. We've been working through these one at a time. Every one of these messages are on our website if you want to go back and listen to any of those. We're coming towards the close of this. Today we're going to deal with the next to the last fruit that's listed, the fruit of gentleness. And so let's jump in. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. Hopefully you've been working on memorizing this. Even if you don't get them in order, just get them in there, right? And uh, hopefully you'll begin to see God producing these increasingly over your life galatians 5 verse 22 paul begins to write and he says but the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control and against such things there is no law so as we deal with gentleness this morning we need to establish what gentleness is not. First of all, gentleness is not weakness. Whenever we refer to gentleness, and I think we've got that on the overhead, whenever we refer to gentleness, and when Scripture speaks of gentleness, it is not referencing weakness. Gentleness does not mean weakness. Some of you have Bible translations that use a different word other than gentleness there. It uses the word meekness. And for some reason, I don't know if it's because they rhyme or if somewhere along the way back when we were learning vocabulary, meekness kind of painted this picture of this kind of a just go with the flow and get walked over kind of a person. But it doesn't mean weakness. When Paul says that one of the fruits of the Spirit is gentleness or meekness, he is not speaking of the fact that we need to put on this cloak of weakness somehow. That is not what he is saying. For some of you, you were very type A. You were very driven. You were one who sets your mind to a task. You fix your eyes on, a, on, a, on, a, on an objective. You've got focus. You have drive. And, and, and that's just the way you are. And you are hard charger and you push. And uh, you get things done and you put things in place. And that's the way you are. And when you come across this particular fruit of the Spirit, it's a little bit confusing for you because you begin to think, so is God wanting me to now become weak? 
That's not what he is saying. Gentleness does not equal weakness. All we have to do is look at the life of Paul to begin with, the man that God used to write this particular passage of Scripture. Paul was not weak. Paul would go toe-to-toe with the religious leaders of his day at great cost. He would get beaten black and blue. He'd be in prison. He would be um, whipped with 39 lashes because specifically of his boldness and his courage to plant his feet and to speak the truth. He was not a weak individual. And even when he suffered the consequences of his obedience, even to the point of being thrown into prison, even there he would pick up that same ball and he would roll out that same message and he would do it all over again. Paul was not a weak individual. When you look at Jesus, Jesus was not a weak individual. Again, he went toe-to-toe with the religious leaders of his day in the very hotbed, in the very center point of religious life there in Jerusalem. Jesus would preach these messages in the synagogue, right? Not on home turf, in a sense. I guess it was all home turf for Jesus when you're creator. But he would go into their territory, and he would preach a a different message that they had heard. He would preach himself as God, himself as the Messiah, to the point where he did it so effectively, he was crucified for it. And even there as a carpenter, physically, the very work that he did would not mean he was weak. Weakness would not be allowed in the carpenter shop. Most theologians believe that when he was beaten before his crucifixion, he was beaten beyond recognition. He carried his own cross for a a significant portion of the journey up to Golgotha. He was not a weak individual. So when we read this fruit of the Spirit, and God tells us that his desire for us is to see gentleness produced in our life, understand, just move out of your, uh, your your, your frame of reference that somehow gentleness equals weakness. It does not. What we often see in the Bible, however, is that gentleness runs in the same circles when it's mentioned, oftentimes with patience and with humility. And those three often form a triangle where they run in the same circles, gentleness, patience, humility. And it's this fruit that Paul mentions here towards the end of the list of one of those qualities that God wants to produce in us. So what what does gentleness look like? Gentleness looks like the parent whose 16-year-old just wrecked the family car. And in their response, whether it's the mom or the dad, it's obvious to the teenager that they care more about their child than they do their car. That's gentleness. Gentleness is the supervisor, the business owner, the boss, whether male or female, who can provide constructive criticism to an employee and it not get personal. It deals with the truth and it does it with gentleness. Gentleness is the person who has been treated unjustly, who has been accused falsely, who has been opposed, vilified. And their response is not to get walked over. That's weakness. Their response is to take a stand for truth and for what's right and sometimes for themselves. But to do it in a way that's not vindictive or retaliatory in nature. That's gentleness. Gentleness is the picture 
of the parent who corrects their child without crushing their child. That's gentleness. Back in the day, I played a lot of sports when I was growing up. And by the way, the older you get, the better you were, right? Y'all have learned that lesson. You know, the older you get, like, man, I was, you should have seen me. Kids, come on, gather around. You should have seen me back in the day, right? I was awesome. Well, back in the day, not so awesome, okay? But the older you get, the better you were. So I played a lot of sports. Some of it was out in the street. Some of it was on teams. And, uh, and then two of our kids, Drew right over here, and Hannah, our oldest, are very much into sports. Our youngest, April, cares nothing about sports. She cares about maybe what the people are wearing sitting in the stands who are watching the sports. She care less about the actual, you know, competition that's taking place. But my two oldest, Drew and Hannah, they love sports, so we've done a lot of sports through the years. And I tell you, I've seen a lot of instances, and I can't say I've been perfect in this, but I've really, I have really tried to be focused on this. I've seen a lot of instances of a lot of kids who face a lot of... Um, Harsh opposition, and it's not from an opponent, it's from a parent in the stands. All right? To the point to where you look at this little 10-year-old kid playing third base or, you know, just trying to, trying to learn the game of basketball or, you know, they're, they're, they're playing football or whatever it may be. And you look at this little kid playing 10U sports and you think, ain't no way, no how, this, this kid's going to still be playing when they get to 14. Right? Because they're going to have to pick between either playing a game that today they enjoy or keeping their dad or sometimes their mom happy and on their side. Because for the 10-year-old, they're thinking, but every time I play this game that I really enjoy right now, it seems like my dad or my mom can't stand me and that I can't do anything right. And so I'm going to make a choice. I'm either going to choose to keep playing this game or to keep my mom and dad happy and on my side. And the reason that often that whole dynamic is sadly in place to begin with is because mom or dad don't have gentleness, right? They haven't learned the art to communicate in a way that is gentle in nature. And at the same time, often what happens for all of us is we haven't learned the art of dealing with opposition or dealing with hostility. And that's really the context in which this, this whole word gentleness is couched is in the face of hostility or opposition. We also have not learned the art of how to deal gently with hostility or opposition in a way that still stands for truth but treats people with respect. And if we want to see what gentleness doesn't look like, just go on social media. Pick your platform. <laughs> and sadly, <laughs> if you want to see what gentleness doesn't look like, go on social media pick your platform, and don't even try to screen out the believers from the unbelievers. Don't worry about screening out the followers of Jesus from those who couldn't care less of who Jesus was and don't believe in him in the first place, because a lot of times, the two don't look a whole lot different, right? And I'm, saying I've not, I'm not saying I haven't ever contributed to that. It's because of the lack of gentleness. Preserving the dignity of someone else while we properly voice perhaps a valid disagreement or a constructive criticism. Gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is strength under control. It's strength with boundaries. It's strength demonstrated, communicated, properly. We, we've had a graphic that we've demonstrated through the course of the series of how each of these um, 
fruits of the Spirit link back to love. And for the one for gentleness, you see it behind me. Gentleness, if you, if you want to track it back to love, is love respected. It's standing over that child who's blown it. It's standing over that coworker who needs some constructive criticism. It, it, it's dealing with that person who is so viciously opposed to you. It's dealing with, uh, with them in a way to where your love for them as your child or as your spouse or as your friend or as even an enemy because Jesus says to love our enemies. It, it, it's, it, gentleness is dealing with them and dealing with their failure or dealing with their opposition or dealing with their attack in a way that still preserves their dignity. It is love ultimately respected. And there are places in Scripture, thankfully, that we can go to to where we see admonition for us, we see commands for us of what this looks like ultimately. In fact, let's go look at one of them in Colossians chapter 3. I've touched on this a little bit already. And uh, Colossians chapter 3 a little bit further forward in, uh, in your New Testament, over from Galatians. Paul's letter to the Colossians. Look at what he says here. He's speaking not just to parents. He's speaking to fathers specifically. Colossians chapter 3, verse 21. He says, fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. It's kind of that picture that I painted earlier of the dad in the stands and the kid on the sports field. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Oh, wait, wait, Brooks, but that passage doesn't say anything about gentleness. I don't see the word anywhere in that passage. I don't think it really applies to what we're talking about. Yes, it does apply. Because what Paul is talking about here is gentleness. It's being able to offer constructive criticism. It's being able to ultimately speak into a person's life, but to do that in a way that leaves them built up rather than pushed down, leaves them built up rather than torn down, leaves them built up rather than beat down. Paul has everything to say here, and it's interesting that he pinpoints the dads specifically, not the moms. It doesn't mean that moms may not struggle with this from time to time, but for dads, listen, I've been one for 16 years, three times over, and I understand the struggle of this, that it's, and, I've, and I've blown it in this area at times before, and I've blown it with my wife and I, with Susie. I've, 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 I've fallen short in the workplace with this, where I didn't demonstrate gentleness before. And he says, Paul paints this picture here, when he, when he says to a father not to exasperate our children, not to put them in a position where they feel like they have no hope, because what's going to happen is they're going to lose heart. How do you remedy that? We deal from the perspective of gentleness. My, my dad, man, my, some, some of you knew my dad less and less now, um, He'd be significantly older now after having passed away 11 or 12 years ago. But my dad, this was just a fruit of the Spirit in his life. I mean, he was, he was this way. He was gentle. And it didn't mean he didn't correct, and it didn't mean that he didn't give admonition, that he didn't give direction. It didn't mean that he didn't lead. He, he just did it in a way that was, that was really, really gentle. Matthew chapter 11, interesting passage of scripture here look over with me to the gospel of matthew if you will so you can read this for yourself in in your copy of scripture matthew chapter 11 when i was growing up it was my mom who had the majority of the spiritual influence and i would just riddle her with questions and ask all kind of questions when i was growing up and learning about the christian faith and probably like some of you you know i wonder at times what jesus looked like and uh because we don't know. I mean, you see paintings of him. He's got the blazing blue eyes and the long brown hair and, you know, the tan skin. And uh, the, people's understanding, perception of what he looked like. But he doesn't really describe himself in the Bible. The scriptures don't describe him physically. Isaiah, maybe to a small degree, does. But Jesus describes himself one time in the Gospels. 
one time, and he doesn't deal with his physical appearance. He deals with the inside. He deals with his heart, and it's right here in Matthew chapter 11. Look at how he describes himself in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Let's look at verse 29. Kind of skip a little bit down on the passage that's in front of you there to verse 29. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Here it is. Here's how he describes himself. The only place in the scriptures where he does. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's what gives strength to the invitation in verse 28. So come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all who are burdened by your sin. Come to me, all who are melting and being crushed under your failure and by the words and the treatment of others. Come to me, he says, and here's what you're going to find. You're not going to find another person with another rock in their hand to throw at you. You're not going to find another person who's going to jump on top of the heap of all the other troubles that have come in your life. Well, you're to find when you come to me he says is you're going to find rest you're going to find rest and peace for your souls and it's not superficial it's going to run deep it's going to run deep into your heart and deep into your life why is that he says because here's who i am when you come to me you're going to find me one who is ultimately perfectly gentle (laughs) And and i'm not going to bury you and i'm not going to be critical of you there is no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus paul says in romans 8 1 jesus says so just come to me and you're going to find that my heart for you is gentle that that's how i deal with those who ultimately trust in me yes god stands on truth yes god communicates for truth yes jesus died for the sake of truth he didn't change the gospel to save his own neck he knew that if the gospel was going to be proven as true he would have to die and he did he didn't change any of that he still stood for the truth but he's gentle to those who ultimately come to him. And here's an interesting thing that you see with Jesus. When he dealt with people who were proud, when he dealt with people who were arrogant, when he dealt with people who thought they had it all together and had no need of a savior, primarily the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, what Jesus did when he dealt with them was he gave them law, 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 law. And in the Gospels, if you came to Jesus with a proud heart, thinking you didn't need a Savior, you were going to get the law. And the law was for the purpose of showing you that you're not as good as you think you are. You need a Savior because at the core of who you are, even on your best day, you still fall short of God. He's perfect and you're not. And so law, 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 law. But if you came to Jesus from a position of humility, it wasn't law, law, law. It was grace, grace, grace. It's John 8, the woman caught in adultery, thrown in front of Jesus. Probably barely had time to throw a sheet around herself. Thrown down in front of Jesus by her accusers. Ready to stone her for what she had done. And it's Jesus stooping down on her level and saying to her, so where are your accusers now? I don't condemn you. Now go and send no more. It's gentleness. It's Jesus, four chapters before that in John 4. The Bible says he had to go through Samaria. It was the long route. It's the long route. It's like going from here to Walmart on Highway 80 by way of Pooler. <laughs> the long way. John says Jesus had to go through Samaria. Because we see in John 4, there was a woman there by a well who had trusted everybody but him. 
And every time the door had slammed shut and she was still left unfulfilled and her heart was thirsty. And he comes to her with gentleness and truth. That's the God. That's the God we read of in Scripture. So there's weight to the command when he tells us in Scripture to put on gentleness. Look at what it says in Titus. Paul is writing a letter to this young pastor, Titus, living on the island of Crete. Look at what Paul says to him, Titus chapter 3. You could just read this one on the overhead for the sake of time. Titus chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 2, Paul writes and he says, Remind them, remind the people under your leadership, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. You move back to Ephesians chapter 4 again. We've got this one on the overhead, Ephesians chapter 4. Look at what Paul writes to the believers in the city of Ephesus, chapter 4, the first three verses. He says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, I beg you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, right? You've been justified. You have been declared not guilty. You've been filled with God's Spirit. You are not who you used to be. So walk in a way that's worthy of that calling. Verse 2, here's what it looks like. With all humility and gentleness, with patience. Remember those three often run together. With all humility, with gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Not in weakness, still standing on truth, but treat people with dignity, with respect, in all humility, and in all ultimately in all patience, and in all gentleness, being tolerant of one another. So, quick question. Would you say you test positive for the fruit of gentleness? Overall, would you say you test positive? And, and, and have you tested positive often over the last week, over the last month? How often would you say you test positive for the fruit of gentleness? And, and even beyond that, let, let's, let's make it interesting. Let's, let's raise the stakes a little bit. <clears throat> if, if your gentleness was on trial and we brought your children up to the platform to gauge the evidence of your life, what would their testimony be as it relates to your gentleness? I've already shared with you what the testimony would be for me sometimes. Not good. And after the, finish, the children finished, what about if we brought your spouse or we bring your, maybe your closest friends and maybe your coworkers and that neighbor who lives over the hedges from you or maybe that one over the back fence from you? And let's even go beyond that. Let, let's, let's pull in some people that are acquaintances, maybe the person who waits on the table at that restaurant that you love to go to, maybe the person who rings up your groceries or, or maybe even that person who, who hasn't always been kind to you. How would they rate you in the quality gentleness again not weakness strength under control that treats people with dignity that treats people with respect while at times speaking truth as well and if it comes as a struggle to you to be gentle because maybe you are that hard charger get things done doesn't bother you at all 
that gentleness may not be where it needs to be for you. So here's some things to consider. I'll give you four, and you can jot them down. I think they're all on the overhead here. The first one is this. You've heard it before. Gentleness doesn't come in our lives because we try harder. It comes because we press closer. There is a part for us to play where we have to take steps to apply gentleness and to respond in gentleness, absolutely. And like I've said, probably half of these messages that I've, that I've shared over these eight weeks or so now, uh, nine weeks, I think this is week nine, um, <clears throat> it's like chopping wood that there is a point where you have to reach down and grab the axe and get it up off the ground and over your shoulder, but the best way to chop is to let the acts do the work. It's made for it. It's got weight behind it. And it's similar for how we walk in the Spirit. There's a point to where we have to ultimately engage. We have to dive in deep in our walks with Christ. We have to rest in Him. We have to trust in Him. We have to spend time in His Word. We have to cultivate a deep relationship with Christ, a relationship that is geared towards surrender. And as we do that, it's kind of like getting that axe off the ground. But from that point on, the Holy Spirit produces the fruit through us. And so the key is not just to say, I need to try harder. Yes, there is a place where we need to say, you know what? I need to be mindful of my lack of gentleness in the workplace or under my roof or with other people. I need to be mindful of how often I hurt people and tear people down. And I need to be mindful of the fact that maybe there are those close to me right now that are really hoping I'm paying attention. I need to be mindful of that. And I need to put some effort towards this. Yes, but the key is to press closer in our relationship with Christ and let him produce that through us. So the first tip for us, I guess if there is a tip, the first of the four is for us to see gentleness, not from trying harder, but ultimately by pressing closer. Number two, a gentle response whenever we're in that place to where we want to lash out. A gentle response sometimes requires a thoughtful response. Sometimes what often happens, here, here's my issue. In those instances where I'm not gentle with another person, I, in every single sense, I can, I can guarantee you that I didn't stop and think before I spoke. Because if I had stopped and thought through my response, rather than to just lash out with a reaction, if I had just given it a thoughtful response, more than likely, I would not have been lacking gentleness in the way I responded to someone that I cared about. An author named Christopher J.H. Wright has written a book about the fruit of the Spirit. Listen to what he says here as it relates to gentleness. This this was too good for me not to read and to share with you. I think we've got the quote behind me. He says, so when somebody else makes a mistake or drops something, loses the keys, or forgets to do what they promised, or generally messes things up, things that happen to all of us at some point in life, at that moment I try not to lose my temper and rage at them, shouting angry words of accusation and blame. No. I control that instinctive response because I remind myself, often just in time, that I could just as easily have been me making that mistake. And if it had been me, how would I want others to respond to my foolishness or weakness or mistakes? Gentleness doesn't snap back, it doesn't lash out, it doesn't overreact. Number three, when tempted to react with harshness, just pause and pray. Pause and pray. I know that sounds preacher-like, doesn't it? (laughs) But really, how much better will we sometimes respond in circumstances if we first gave it a thoughtful response and then just paused and prayed, Lord, every part of me right now wants to lash out. Every part of me right now wants to just go off. But God, 
that's not going to help. It's only going to hurt. Would you give me wisdom? You know, James says if we ask for wisdom, he'll give it. That's a pretty good deal. So God, would you just give me wisdom now so that I can build up, not tear down, that I can respond with gentleness? Would you produce this fruit in my life? You just pause and pray. And then number four, before we wrap things up, number four, I think it can be helpful as well for all of us if ahead of time we count the cost of rejecting gentleness. What's it going to cost if you are not gentle with people around you? What's it going to cost? The first, there are kind of like two, two layers to that question. The first layer is what, what will you lose if you consistently lack gentleness? Now, I know for all of us, there are moments where we speak without thinking. There are moments where we hurt someone with the words we say. That doesn't make it right. We should be quick to ask for forgiveness. But consistently over time, if we fail in, in, in embracing gentleness, if we reject gentleness, ask yourself this question, what will you lose if you consistently reject gentleness? I want you to feel the weight of that. What will you lose? Will you lose a job? You could. You pop off at the wrong person the wrong way, you might find yourself on the curb with your stuff in a little box saying thank you for your years of service. Right? You could lose your job. You could lose your position. You could lose your testimony. Social media is just filled with examples, like I said earlier, of believers, people who love Jesus, who just do not handle opposition and do not handle differing opinions and do not handle uh, uh, the, the issues of the day in a way that's gentle. And it's one thing. Remember, gentleness doesn't mean weakness. There is a way to stand for what is true and what is right without being a knucklehead on social media for the whole world to see, <laughs> Right? Gentleness is it's, it's that strength under control, usually in the face of opposition, usually in the face of harshness, usually in the face of criticism. That's when gentleness shines. It's, it's brightest. So if you reject that kind of gentleness over time, you just might lose your testimony. Right? I could lose my testimony. I could, you, we could lose respect from other people. What will it cost if you reject gentleness? And, and even a deeper question... Not just what will you lose, who will you lose if you consistently reject gentleness? You might, you might lose your kids. You might hear from neighbors and friends. Hey, I heard your child got in trouble. Hey, I heard your child's into some stuff they don't need to be into. What? I, first I heard of this. It's because they're going to everyone else for help. Because I know you're going to lose it if they bring it to you. Now, maybe that's not you, but maybe it is. You might lose your kids. You might lose a spouse. You might lose a friend. If, if consistently, and it's the same for me, I don't get a free pass in this. If consistently we reject what it means to be gentle. So the recap is very simple. We are desperate. We don't have what it takes in our flesh to be like Jesus. But the good news is that when we come to Jesus on his terms, he justifies us. He declares us not guilty. The sin is gone. It's really good news. And he says, I, you know, I'm going to fill you with my spirit, and my spirit is going to, over time, 
mold and shape you into the person that reflects Jesus. And as you press close to the Spirit, and as you rest in Christ, He's going to mold and shape you and transform your life over time. And so if this is an area where we struggle, we can have a second chance, so to speak. And it doesn't mean if you're the hard charger type person who often speaks without engaging your mind, and even if you've hurt a ton of people and you've felt the wreckage of your rejection of gentleness before, it doesn't mean you can't still be that person. Because gentleness doesn't mean weakness. It means strength under control. And as you press close, he can produce that quality through you to the degree to where people around you clamor for your attention because you build up, you don't tear down. You strengthen, you don't crush. You inspire, you don't discourage. If you know Jesus, that waits for you. So press close. And if you don't, hey, no better time than today to get a brand new start and to be made alive in your relationship with God through inviting Jesus to forgive and to take over. And he'll do it. He'll do it just for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for never giving up on us. Thank you, God, that you're always good. You're always faithful. Thank you that you were perfectly gentle during your time on this earth. And Lord, even though we often fall so far short in displaying gentleness, we thank you that you still are faithful to produce this as we press in close to you. And so God, make us to be people who are bold. Help us to be people who are strong in our faith. Help us to be people who plant our feet. And no matter the cost, stand for what is right and what is good and what is true. Sometimes in the place of others who can't stand for themselves. But God, help us to do it in a way that is gentle that recognizes the dignity of every person that you've created. And Lord, help us to walk that balance well. Not because we've tried harder, but because you've produced that fruit through us. Lord, there are some families that will have a lot more peace tonight. And there are some marriages that will have a lot more peace tonight. If some under that roof can just see more gentleness produced in the way they treat one another. God, none of us have this nailed down. We all need help. Produce it through us, we pray. For it's in Jesus' name we ask.